Kill those two men. Nothing in the world can stop me now. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're diving deep into the classic series to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're talking about the half-missing 1967 story, The Underwater Menace. And boy, do we have a fish story for you. <laughs> I'm your host, and nothing in the world can stop me now. <laughs> famous last words. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who is famous for organizing the first fish union. <laughs> How are those union dues going, Guy? Well, I'm going to do all that calculating when I head out to my Malibu beach house in a <laughs> week or two. So um, this is the first story to feature the lost city of Atlantis in, in the Doctor Who universe, and they'll come back to it many times in the future, or at least several times. As I'm sure you can guess, they don't exactly do continuity there. <laughs> they just do new versions <laughs> of it. Um, uh, okay, so we're not going to see uh, the evolution of this civilization. <laughs> and for a long time, they only had one remaining episode and everything else was reconstructions. But in 2011, they found one more. So we have two, you know, half the stories available. Uh, we'll see if it's the Lost Who episode that we really wanted to be recovered. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, this had been a troubled script hanging around for a long time. They were never sure how to make it work because, you know, it has all this underwater stuff and everything. And nobody was really happy with the script. But as sometimes happens in shows like this where you have to where you you have to go out every week no matter what, is there was another story they were planning to do, but the writer got sick and couldn't complete it. And so they're like, well, what do we got? Well, we got this. <laughs> so, you know, no one was happy about it, but it's what they had. And sometimes when you're a weekly TV <laughs> show, then you just go with what you got. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny. So the producer asked a person to direct it and he looked into it and he was interested in doing underwater filming and stuff. And he knew people who'd worked on the James Bond film Thunderball, which had come out, you know, right before this. And have you ever watched that one? Do you recall that? I don't think so. I've only seen, uh, I've seen Goldfinger. I'm not sure if I've seen any oh my. Well, it's, you know, my contractual time, and I've probably said it about Bond before in the podcast that we'll have to watch those as part of the series at some point. Thunderball is, <laughs> is pretty amazing because uh, they had all this underwater scuba stuff, and scuba was relatively new at the time, or at least, you know, we've had people getting into big suits and everything going underwater for 150 years, right? But yeah. scuba that basically anybody could access was was pretty new around the you know late 60s, right? And hmm. um, Thunderball did this amazing job where they have all these underwater action scenes and everything with, with people doing scuba. And uh, so, so he called out the people he knew who'd worked on the film and said, well, here's my Doctor Who budget. What could I do? <laughs> and they laughed at him. <laughs> they said, look, it costs us millions to do these underwater scenes, you know, and this is millions in 1968. Uh, oh, yeah. So the director decided he would turn down this story, and it was given to a different director, Julia Smith. And I'll just say right up front, I mean, you know, usually we try to do as we go through, but I'll say right, the, the act, none of the actors were happy with the script. Uh, Patrick hmm. Troughton disliked the story. He disliked the costumes. He didn't like the director. And he was especially unhappy with her approach to an extended underwater sequence that I'm sure we'll mention as we go along. 
<laughs> so let's see how you how you feel about all this. <laughs> all right. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trouting dislike the story. I, it seemed like a fairly standard, maybe a cut above average Doctor Who yeah. story uh, from what I've seen of the show so far. <laughs> well, you you might like it more than most. Uh, I mean. What I would argue, and we talk about as we go through, is that I feel like it was sort of a mishmash of, you know, I don't know, literally a dozen different story tropes, you know, we've had in Doctor Who. Like, there was nothing really <laughs> oh, yeah. original in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. The Doctor, Doctor Zeroff, mm -hmm. uh, his plan, I'm not sure if uh, we've seen anything quite like it before <laughs> off the top of my head. Although I'm going to uh, say, if you don't like the Dalek plans and you like his plan, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I necessarily like it, but it was uh, sort of a breath of fresh air, I thought. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's uh, get into episode one. So the Highlander, Jamie, has joined Ben and Polly as a companion. I noticed that because he... Well, first of all, we saw this before with... Um, dodo right where she started out with kind of a, a thick accent and they immediately had her get rid of it um in in jamie's case he wasn't intended to be a permanent character so he had this kind of thick scottish accent well so already in this uh story they start pairing that back and later they pair it back even more right so that uh, <laughs> they don't want anybody to not be able to understand what he's saying yeah and Throughout this story, a, a bunch of Ben's lines, you know, we talked previously, like, okay, Ben was kind of the young, you know, hot guy on the show, and all of a sudden they add another young hot guy, and, you know, they're having to, like, split the lines between them because the show wasn't written for, for Jamie being there. And I had mentioned I wondered if um, the the actor playing Ben was upset about this, and they actually, so I listened, uh, Toby, a friend of the, the podcast, Toby, did the background materials mm -hmm. for this DVD and Fraser Hines and Annika Wills, who, who plays Polly, uh, were both part of his interview and he asked them about that. And, and they said, no, actually, um, the actor whose name I didn't write down here, he was such a nice and generous guy that he never complained and he never had a problem with the lines being split up and, and all that. So, um, probably a little mm -hmm. bit unusual cause you know, actors are usually like, pretty sensitive about that stuff right so, oh sure they gotta jealously guard their uh their territory yep <laughs> well that's that's good i hope things went well for him afterwards and uh then jamie has to go through the the, the required new companion i don't believe this stuff you know <laughs> for a while yeah so we're used to that so <laughs> And as they're landing, each crew member is wishing for what their destination will be, right? Because they've been making a big deal in the last couple that the doctor doesn't know where it's going to go, et cetera. And uh, of all of them, I thought it was interesting because the doctor is hoping for prehistoric monsters, <laughs> which is, first of all, <laughs> kind of a funny <laughs> thing to hope for. It's sort of like when, when Hartnell said that the uh, uh, the French Revolution was his favorite period of history, right? <laughs> uh, you know, Wanting to read about or watch a movie about prehistoric monsters is a little different than wanting to actually show up with them. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but maybe someday. I won't, uh, I won't spoil anything, but maybe there'll be some prehistoric monsters someday. <laughs> yeah, you'd think they'd have to dip into that sooner or later. Yeah. 
So they land on a typical English rocky coast, but <laughs> the doctor assures us it's not Britain because the rock is young volcanic, only about 25 million years old. So uh, I'm glad they, they took a, you know the cast uh, to some other island. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and this is where, you know, in the first episodes of Reconstruction, and this is the worst thing for Reconstruction, right? We have probably five minutes where they're just milling around and exploring this island and splitting up and everything. So all we get in the Reconstruction is noise. We have no idea what's going on. And also, I'm really, I feel like the BBC was just really chintzy here, right? Because they did this as a DVD because of the live episodes. They did nothing in the reconstruction portions to make them easier. They didn't put any text about what was going on. They didn't add a narrator to tell you. They just did the yeah, screenshots, you know? They, uh, uh, well, the fourth episode, there's a lot of action that's very difficult to decipher without reading the script. Yeah, and I just feel time. like, geez, if you were going to the cost and, you know, the the effort of doing a DVD, why not put in some text that tells people what's happening? I mean, it, it wouldn't be that hard. And I even, I turned on the subtitles and it was just the dialogue. There was no, uh, you know, nothing was described. Uh, very frustrating. Yeah. I think that the BBC has some weird thing about the reconstructions because I had never realized it before, but something that Toby mentions in the background materials is they could only put actor, you know, commentary and interviews um, on the live action episodes. They were not allowed to do it on the uh, reconstructions, which is an interesting – it's huh. a BBC policy that they couldn't do it. So what they did uh, for the reconstructions is they they dug up old interviews with people who had died um, and and played those, you know, during there. But uh, – put- put them on like oh oh they oh they they put the audio of the interviews yeah. on the commentary track yeah yeah interesting uh, but just kind of weird that they wouldn't let the actors talk about the reconstruction episodes you know so interesting yeah you'd you'd think considering uh that it's still their voices that are being heard yeah uh but eh, i don't know maybe maybe they were just cheap and didn't want to pay for interviews that much <laughs> So this being a Doctor Who story, the first thing that Ben and Jamie do is leave Polly. <laughs> so it's like, okay, the guys are going to go oh, off yeah. over here and leave the woman here in a strange place I think, we don't know. <laughs> I think she's exhausted and she can't go on or something. Mm -hmm. and, right. Uh, so we'll just leave you here. <laughs> 20 steps from the TARDIS. And, and uh, Polly then finds her way into some caves in the rock and she screams about something. And I'll say... This is a really disappointing story for Polly, right? Up to now, she's been the kind of, you know, the new woman, the, you know, take charge, et cetera, especially in the Highlanders, right? She came up with all the plans and, you know, every time the other woman she was with wanted to give up, she's like, no, we must go and do this and that. And this one, she is, basically, she's Susan, right? She screams. She doesn't do much. She, yeah. You know, yeah. There's there's one part, I think maybe the third episode where she's got an opportunity. There's a fight oh, between it's two really guys. She's and uh, you, you keep waiting for her to, you know, grab a rock. Yeah, and yeah we'll get there. But she's behind the bad guy while he is trying to stab her friend. And she does nothing. Nothing. And yeah. she screams. And it was just like, this is not Polly, right? It's, what I would say is the <laughs> yeah. writer of this episode did not know this character, right? And... Mm -hmm. And she didn't, for whatever reason, have an opportunity to 
to make changes or something because it's just not her character. And uh, anyway, so then in this, you know, you have no idea what's going on in the reconstruction, but the doctor finds some pottery on the shore and he's surprised because the pottery is reasonably new. He can tell it was fired not that long ago. So it's not like millions of years old. It's actually fresh. And uh, then, and again, it's really hard in the reconstruction to know what's going on here, but somehow in the next 30 seconds, the entire crew in three different locations manages to be captured and put together into some kind of elevator that's going down. There's nobody else there, just them. And the elevator descends a long way. And in fact, they go far enough down that they end up unconscious. Yeah, it's uh, it's ni- ni- nitrogen, I think they said. Uh, is yeah, caisson's yeah, disease, disease which something. is a diver's thing, right? When you um, you come up too quickly and, and the nitrogen expands and, you know, yeah, it causes you problems. So they're going down quickly, um, you know, the same issue. So when they wake up, uh, they're in some room, and Polly predicts that they're around 1970 or so because she finds some kind of souvenir from the Mexico Olympiad. And she says, you know, in our time, which was – so her and Ben were from 68, the time when the show was actually airing. She says this actually hasn't occurred, but this shows that it has occurred, so we're – Later than that, right? And yeah. I looked up uh, that because I never heard of the Mexico Olympiad. Uh, that was a little weird to me. And obviously, it was a big deal if they were talking about something that when the show went out hadn't happened yet. So obviously, people were oh, anticipating yeah. it. So I well, I looked up or slash asked Chat GPT about it. <laughs> so <laughs> even though it hadn't happened when the show actually aired, it did end up being a famous Olympics for a couple reasons. One was. It was the first time they added a lot of new technology to it. So, for example, the running tracks had new materials and stuff, you know, that um, that were more effective. Uh, but the other one, which which I remember and you probably remember being, a, you know, similar age to me, was that was the one where a couple of the participants did the Black Power salute after they won the uh. awards. Um, so it did turn out to be significant. So Doctor Who sort of predicted that, I guess. <laughs> and... Uh, then, and there's no sound for this. You wouldn't know it at all, except there's a picture of it. A man with a weird costume and a trident suddenly appears. And Polly tries to speak with him in several languages, and none of them work. But then Jamie figures out that he speaks Gaelic. And there's two things here, but this never comes in again. There's no Gaelic again. There's no explanation of this. The only reason... For this guy to speak Gaelic and Jamie to be able to speak to him in Gaelic is because they needed to give Jamie something to do <laughs> because he was not originally <laughs> in this episode, right? <laughs> and then they're taken to a room that has some food in it and the doctor just goes crazy. He's like snarfing up this food and, you know, just raving about it and calls it ambrosia. And then he tells them that it's plankton, you <laughs> know, little stuff from the sea. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound, uh, you know, too appetizing to me. I'm guessing it just tastes like sea seafood in general, which uh, some seafood I like, but there's a good deal of it I'm not that <laughs> interested in. I'm a fan of most seafood, but yeah, it, what it actually made me feel like was the old episode where, you know, they, they were being mind controlled by the brain thingies. And so they thought that they were eating great food or, you know, in a, in an amazing lab and all that kind of stuff. So, Cause he just goes on about oh, it yeah. in such an inc- incredible way. And even, you know, 
like Ben and Polly are like, well, he never talks about food. You know, <laughs> what's this about? <laughs> <laughs> but there does turn out to be a plot point here. Although it's a little tenuous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, some kind of leader shows up. And I, I think this is Ramo. There's multiple levels of leadership we deal with here. And <laughs> he's wearing, well, <laughs> this is. I, I, this, what I'm going to say about this whole story is, and the director and the, you know, the people doing the sets and the costumes, they were ambitious, but it's just one where the ambition and the execution don't, <laughs> don't match up. Right? So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, for two of the episodes, we only see the stills, right. but then there is a, well, it's actually, it's that underwater scene that you touched on a little <laughs> earlier. I, I was fairly impressed by okay. that, but we'll. Well, here, you know, and again, this, because uh, I'm thinking Aztecs right here, because you have these people with headdresses and stuff, but the Aztecs had pretty impressive costumes. And here, the headdresses are this kind of spaghetti or something popping out of their head. <laughs> it's sort of like, a, <laughs> it's sort of like Medusa, but with spaghetti, you know, and, and then you have, <laughs> And this comes back many times. They have these three sort of 3D fish masks on a stick. So it's like you were going to a costume ball and you could put this this fish thing in front of your faces. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and so this guy, Ramo, tells the crew that the living goddess Amdo sees and hears all and told them that the crew would fall from the sky in time for their festival of the vernal equinox which they're going to play an important part in. And I'm going to say this whole thing, and this is we've had multiple other Doctor Who stories where people predicted them coming and everything, but usually there was some plot reason for it. Here there is. We never, mm -hmm. there isn't, we never hear about it again. We don't, we have no idea why anyone would know they would be coming because they didn't know they would be coming. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense, but okay, we'll just move on. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, they're going to be playing an important part in this. And, then, and again, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, rituals and festivals. So again, I have Aztecs in mind. Uh, and of course, right. you know, the Aztecs is sort of officially one of the podcast's uh, favorite episodes of, the, uh, of what we've seen oh, so yeah. far. <laughs> so, so, so this story has something to live up to. <laughs> and then we find out, and this again, this really tenuous plot point that well, you know, the doctor starts something that is already a, a trope for this doctor, right? Which is he always comes up with, oh, I have something important to tell the guy in charge. He's done that. This is maybe his third time. I don't know. And he's only had like three stories or something. So, um, <laughs> so he always comes, I, I got something important to tell the guy in charge so that he can get taken to the guy in charge. Uh, and one of the things he mentions here while he's trying to talk his way to talking to whoever's in charge is that he knows that there's a Dr. Zaroff that must be here. And why does he know that? Because only he could have created that seafood. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nobody else could make plankton taste this delicious. <laughs> uh, so... Um, Ramo isn't interested. Uh, so there's a young, and this is another weird plot thing in this. And even and the actress is part of the interviews uh, behind the scenes. So there's this young, literally 16 year old actress, and and she plays the character uh, uh, called Ara. And all she does in the story is like take messages between people and stuff. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, she just instantly becomes the interloper's little helper right uh, but uh she does she does explain that later on but uh yeah, yeah it's still surprising uh, un 
you know, doesn't exactly make sense at first. <laughs> so she shows up and gives the doctor, or the doctor gives her, suddenly he knows he can trust her for some reason, and he writes something on a piece of paper for her to give to Zaroff. And later we'll see the message turns out to be, vital secret will die with me, Dr. W, signed Dr. W. And I, you know, I know you, you're you going to try to use this as a proof for your case, but, you know. Uh, you anticipated my <laughs> objection. In the last there. story, he was like Dr. Wittgenstein or something, remember? So uh, Dr. W <laughs> could be something else. <laughs> well, there was Dr. Ver, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, but that turned out to be German for yeah, who? I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think the denial is getting pretty deep here. <laughs> so, um, meanwhile, it turns out that the crew is being sacrificed as part of this festival. And it's really hard to understand the reconstruction, what's going on. They have them laid out on some kind of slabs, but theoretically they're going to be put into the water. We see a picture of a shark. I don't under, but the slab, it was, I couldn't understand how the slabs were going to, Maybe they were going to rotate up or something. I don't know. Uh, but I will say, because James Wan, you know, we already talked about the James Wan connection to the underwater filming. And I think there are several James mm. Bond things that come up. And one of them is the drop them in the water with a shark, right? That was a <laughs> that was a classic James Bond uh, trap thing. Oh, yeah. And, of course, uh, it was famously uh, built upon in uh, Austin Powers here with the all I wanted was sharks with frickin' laser beams <laughs> on their heads. Uh, also, the one I always think of is The Simpsons. They had this great episode, and de- you know, I haven't watched it in decades, so it was decades ago, which was um, with mobsters, right? And there's this weird guy with this 70s uh, house he's built that's, you know, very odd and everything, and he's he's really into fish, and <laughs> and the mo- and mobsters are part of the story. <laughs> And at some point, the head mobster, you know, was like, I thought you said he sleeps with the fishes. <laughs> and the guy was like, no, mm-hmm. I meant he sleeps with the fishes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was Troy McClure, Phil Hartman's, one of Phil Hartman's characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and while we're talking about The Simpsons and James Bond, one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons, uh, I've only seen like the first Ten seasons, give or take. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> they uh, they had a James Bond villain character uh, named, I think it was Hank Scorpio, and Homer went to work for him. And uh, at one point, Scorpio has this uh, Mister Bond <laughs> tied to a table, and uh, and he says, "Scorpio, you're a madman." <laughs> Scorpio says, I wouldn't point fingers, you jerk. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, that just always makes me smile. (laughs) So, you know, they're about to be sacrificed to this shark, but Dr. Zaroff appears and he stops the sacrifice because he wants to know about the doctor's message. Now, you know, reasonably, logically, he doesn't care if all the rest of them are killed. He just wants the doctor saved, but... Um, uh, but he does upset the priest or whatever. He was like, oh, you know, you're screwing with our traditions. You can't do this. And he's like, oh, you can, you know, you can sacrifice the rest of them. I just want the doctor. But the doctor <laughs> then says he's not going to tell him this critical information unless his friends are released. So Zaroff releases them all and kind of, you know, sets up a little problem going forward with the locals. And uh, from the beginning, and I'll give this after it, right? Because I think he was just giving it his all for giving this story and everything because the, Dr. Mm-hmm. Zaroff is a good old-fashioned mad scientist, you know. <laughs> he's, 
he's cackling evilly and, you know, and, and, uh, the doctor says, oh, you know, we thought you were dead 20 years ago. And he's like, oh, the whole world fell for me pretending to be kidnapped, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he pretended to be kidnapped. And then and, and, and the doctor mentions that, oh, and, uh, you know, the, e- the West uh, blamed the East, et cetera. So apparently this caused like international tensions because everyone figured the other side in the Cold War had taken him or something. And uh, in the meantime, he had come down to Atlantis and – now, as he's done, I think previously, the doctor admits he has no secret to tell Zaroff. <laughs> and Zaroff says he could have him killed, but he likes the doctor's sense of humor and thinks he can make use of him. So that's nice. <laughs> and the rest of the crew was spared, but they were turned over to the labor controller, a guy named Damon. And he's he's sort of a character in the story. He shows up multiple times, but doesn't get much screen time. Doesn't really you know do much. Uh, he's apparently an accomplished surgeon. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> In yeah, addition to being the labor a controller, so it's convenient to labor controller and <laughs> surgeon. Yeah. Uh, so he decides that Ben and Jamie will be taken off to the mines, but he's holding Polly back for something else. <laughs> yeah, and you. And at least I got the idea that I had a pretty good idea what something else he had <laughs> in mind. So he tells Polly, "Life is very beautiful under the sea." And he does this in a very poetic way. And then he shows her fish people gathering food underwater. And we can't really tell, but I suspect this is another one of the wire scenes where you're watching them sort of float around um, mm-hmm. on wires. And so they gather the food for, for Atlantis and they survive because they have plastic gills. And Polly is impressed. And <laughs> this is I do like this part in the script. And Damon is glad she's taking it so well because most people are upset when they find out they're about to have the operation. <laughs> Uh, and you know, she's like, what? And he's like, oh, you know, the operation is going to turn you into a fish person. (laughs) Although to me, this is also a callback to, um, oh, the one where they were draining the energy from, you know, the natives. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, they, they had read off the numbers while they were sucking the life. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty similar because they turn people into slaves to create, you know, so elsewhere, Zaroff and the doctor are talking, and with clues from Zaroff, the doctor figures out that they're in Atlantis, and Zaroff has promised the locals he's going to raise Atlantis from the sea, so that's why they're, you know, letting him do whatever he wants to do, because they, they're looking forward to, I guess, joining the rest of the world again. Mm-hmm. And Ara, the girl who had delivered the doctor's message to Zaroff, now shows up, you know, kind of behind the scenes to let him know that Polly is about to be turned into a fish. So she really cares about these people she met literally two minutes ago. <laughs> the doctor asked her where the main fuses are, which, again, <laughs> you look at the, la- you know, the power of the Daleks, et cetera. Another trope for this doctor is he just wants to go to the power source and rip out the cable strands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she doesn't know what he's talking about, so he just asked her to do whatever she can to help Polly. And then we switch to Damon and his people, and they're in surgical garb, and they put Polly onto a gurney so they can give her the fish jab, and it's the end of the episode. (laughs) So episode number two, we actually get live action, and it's much easier to figure (laughs) out what's going on when you have that. Yeah, even though, you know, if I had to choose stories to get episodes back, this probably wouldn't be the one I'd choose. I. It was really helpful to have at least, you know, half the story be live action because at least you had some idea of what was going on and who <laughs> the characters were and, and all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And in, in the absence of any uh, 
subtitles that explain the action, uh, particularly. You know, in a lot of the reconstructions, we've had helpful things, you know, like the doctor opens the cabinet <laughs> and removes a <laughs> device or something. None of that here. So in his lab, Zaroff explains Atlantis sank at the time of the Great Flood. He just says the flood. I'm presuming that's the uh, the biblical flood. Uh, but uh, but the caves in the volcano had air pockets, and the center of the volcano provided an air shaft. So uh, all the life that was in the in the volcano, <laughs> apparently there were a lot of humans living in the volcano when it sank. <laughs> And uh, the doctor sort of sneaks over. He backs up to some wires that are sticking out of one of the walls, and uh, uh, he interrupts the power to the operating room. Uh, I don't know if he even knows where the wires go, but uh, uh, fortunately, it affects the lighting in the operating room. It interrupts the operation, which is about to commence. Uh, and Damon, who is the labor controller and apparently chief of surgery, he, uh, he's just about to get started on uh, poor old Polly, but uh, now he has to go check on what Zaroff is up to, because I guess Zaroff has, uh, has deprived him of power, given him brownouts and right. whatnot in the past, maybe. Yeah, and I can see me he's annoyed about that, but <laughs> logically, the operation consists of them giving her a shot, like in the neck, <laughs> so it... <laughs> they didn't really have to stop the operation because the lights went down, <laughs> but uh, it's con convenient for us that they did, you know. But, uh. Well, at some point, they have to uh, insert some plastic gills, I think. Maybe. So, uh, I guess I was assuming that came out of the shot, but I suppose it might, be, uh, it might be a separate procedure, yeah. It could be. I think he mentioned plastics specifically, mm. so I would think that would take, uh, take surgery. <laughs> But then I've been playing cyberpunk the last week or so, so I'm uh, I may be just in that frame of mind, <laughs> the body modification and all that. Uh, anyway, he goes to uh, check on what Zaroff's up to with the power supply, and now in the operating room the lights are out completely. So uh, Damon's assistants uh, leave to find some light sources, and they leave Era in charge of Polly. And once again, she uh, is the eager helper <laughs> of the uh, strangers from outside the city. Uh, she releases Polly and even leads her through the darkness uh, because Ara is familiar with the dark and I guess can see a little bit in it or knows her way around. In the laboratory, uh, the doctor apologizes. He's snapped a handle off the power controls, which was what uh, turned out the lights in the in the operating room. He, he says he was clumsy, he apologizes, but, uh, but Damon realizes this is not <laughs> an accident. Uh, and that makes Zaroff suspicious when Damon calls out the doctor. So he's going to keep the doctor right in his lab with him as his guest. The doctor wanted to try and uh, wangle his way into following Damon back to the operating room and see what kind of chaos he could start there. But, uh, now, Zaroff is going to keep the doctor close at hand for now, as his guest. And uh, he reveals that to make the Atlanteans accept him, he made them a deal. Uh, in exchange for not sacrificing him, he would lift Atlantis from the ocean. Yeah. Uh, and somewhere along the way, I didn't put this in my notes, but somewhere along the way, uh, we found out that 
Zeroff had taught Damon everything he knows about science and presumably surgery, because uh, Damon, I guess, is a native Atlantean and, and not well-versed with modern technology except what Zeroff taught him. Mm-hmm. But Zeroff's going to lift Atlantis from the ocean, uh, but technically he's not going to lift Atlantis <laughs> so much as lower the oceans. <laughs> And he's going to do that by draining them into the Earth's crust. Now, the doctor says, well, the crust is pretty thick, and in, below it there's this molten core of whatever it is. And uh, uh, he says, this is going to superheat the water, convert it into steam, and blow up the world, which I'm not sure that that would actually happen. I mean, something bad might happen, but I, the, would the world blow up? Especially remember the Daleks have already sort of mined out the center of the planet. So, uh, no, you know, that, that stuff might all be gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big planet, though. They couldn't have put too much of a dent in it in the short time they were there. So Zaraf confirms, now, I, you know, this is kind of a fun little counterintuitive thing for me because... I figured Zaref was going to say, no, no, I've done all the calculations and that won't happen. But no, he says, you know, he, he agrees. He says, yes, this is exactly what I'm planning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, apparently it doesn't matter much to him that it means he'll die along with everybody else on right, Earth. Uh, he says this will fulfill his promise to the Atlanteans, and it will also fulfill what he says is the scientist's dream of supreme power. <laughs> See, to me, supreme power that lasts about a second <laughs> isn't really, I don't know. I, I don't think I'd take a lot of satisfaction from it in that one or two seconds that I had. Then we see down in the mine, uh, the foreman is there, and he introduces Jamie and Ben to two of the miners who are going to show him the ropes. These are Sean and Jacko, and, and Sean is the... Most Irish of the <laughs> Irish. He's just uh, very, very Irish. And when the foreman uh, got there, he saw Sean and Jacko were looking a little suspicious. They were whispering, cons- maybe conspiring about something. So he searches them. But uh, Sean's a slick one. So uh, while the foreman's searching Jacko, Sean hands off his contraband to Jamie, who, who takes it in good faith, I guess. And uh, then this foreman uh, searches searches Sean, doesn't find anything. Uh, after the foreman leaves, we find that what Sean handed to Jamie was a compass, uh, which is useful in the mines, but also not permitted in the mines. And the penalty uh, is pretty severe, we're led to infer from this. Also, unless I missed something in the last episode of Reconstruction, this compass never comes up again and is never important in the stories. Mm. Yeah, I think you may be right about that. They don't seem to actually use it for a whole heck of a lot when it might actually be useful. Maybe that's just stuff that, uh, you know, that happens off camera, Mm. I guess. We'll say that. (laughs) So uh, back in the lab, Damon has returned to report that Polly has escaped because R let her out. Uh, He doesn't know that part. He just knows that she's gone. Damon explains to the doctor that uh, their human labor for Atlantis is easy to obtain because uh, they get a lot of shipwrecks around here, I guess. And uh, who knows, maybe they even uh, influence a few of them into happening. The doctor 
eventually does a little trick with a test tube. He pours some liquid out of it that releases this noxious cloud and distracts Damon and gives the doctor a chance to beat feet out of there. Yeah, I'm assuming he combined, you know, one chemical with another or whatever to, you know, uh, but uh, we but we don't really get to see what he does. He just... Yeah, I, I mean, it, it might have been there and I just didn't have the keen observer, observational powers to notice it. But to me, it just looked like he poured out a test yeah. tube. But it a big cloud of stuff comes out of it and that gives him a chance to sneak off. Back in the temple with the big goofy uh, god statue that they've got in there, uh, Amdo, it's a statue of, Ara has brought Polly here to this big statue and tells her to hide on it somewhere and be quiet. It's big enough and in an elaborate enough setting. It's it's like a huge statue in itself, and then it's got like walls around it, so there's a little space where you can hide behind it, or there's well, stairs. Well, was there a next statue or just the can... huge face? I only really noticed the face. Well, I was, yeah, it, it was just a big face uh, statue, but uh, I don't know if they were trying to imply that there face. was the rest of the body there or not. I just assumed it was only the face. Okay. No, I, yeah, uh, it, it may very well be just just a face. That's all I saw. And, and I will it, say, but, I mean, uh, it looks fine, and actually. Well, you know, we'll talk about as we get there some of the limitations of the sets, but they did, they did try to be pretty ambitious with the sets. They had a lot of stuff on them and going on, you know. They but they were really mm -hmm. limited by the fact that they had very small space to work with. You know, it was one of those uh, Ewing Studios or whatever where it's just this tiny amount of space. So <laughs> there's a there's a future scene where there's about 20 people packed into this little tiny space. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. This is Doctor Who sets go. It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you got the big, the big sort of, I guess it's sort of fish faced. Uh, not really, but it, there's an aspect to it that's sort of fishy, I guess. But also, uh, You've got a secret door that we'll find later. You've got well. I think the weird thing about the Amdo thing, and I, one, I think this writer is not like. I don't know if he's ever in Doctor Who again. I, I don't recognize the name of the writer. Is it Jeffrey something Ohm? Um, but it, from the stuff I've been criticizing and everything, I say this is a writer who doesn't have this concept of tying things together or you know bring up you know the. Uh, what's his name's uh, uh, rifle, or you know, uh, uh, you know, you, when you see the gun in the first scene, you know it's going to be used in the last oh, scene. Uh, was it Chekhov? Yeah, Chekhov. Um, so this guy just brings up stuff all the time and then never comes back to it. So, for example, one of the things about as you're kind of hinting at with this this big face is it has a hidden area behind it and a way to talk through and, and act as if you're the god. And they use that, but but we've never seen, is it like apparently maybe Zeroth uses this to control people, but we never see him do it. We don't know, you know, like they, it's just there and there's no reference to it. Unlike, say, um, you know, we saw in the, the rescue when they were introducing Vicky as the new character and there was that, uh, you know, that alien creature that was controlling everything. And, you know, eventually over time we discover it's actually a human um, pretending to be that character, right? But the, in this story, it would be like you would see that weird alien creature and then it would disappear and never come back again, right? <laughs> That's just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, I'm trying to think of what that alien, I'm, yeah, I, oh, I can't Oh, do you remember, oh, Vicky, when Vicky was introduced, so they, this is right after Susan left, 
and there's this crashed spaceship. Oh, that's yeah. right. I was confusing that with the one where uh, London was all abandoned right. and the Daleks had taken it. No, I know. Yeah, it was a crashed spaceship. There's a guy who's got his own little room on it, and it, he he turns. He had a weird name like Cadillac or something <laughs> like that. But uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, again, it, it, it's like that creature comes back and is important to the story where in here it would just be like, oh, okay, and then never come back again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, brought in purely for convenience, yeah. Yeah, they do seem to uh, suggest, I mean, the the mask, they mentioned the mask had predicted the outsiders coming out of the sky for the to be sacrifices for the festival so, so somebody's making to a assume voice. it would be Zeroth, but then zero but again it made no sense because Zeroth would have no way to know they were coming right it just you know yeah <laughs> yeah or the or the high priest except he seems as stymied as yeah, everybody else yeah. by the so by basically the we so, just yeah, for no reason we have this big mask that you can pretend to be the god from and you know, somebody must have been pretending to be the god, but we don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was our uh, all along. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Polly's here in the big temple room with the, st- well, a small temple room with the big <laughs> statue of Amdo's face. And Ara tells her to hide on it somewhere and be quiet, which uh, there's, there's enough, it's a big enough statue with enough nooks and crannies around mm-hmm. it that she can find somewhere to hide. Down in the mine, the four men, uh, our two companions and the two new guys, Sean and Jacko, uh, they're all eating their plankton. And Sean explains something here that it would be a good plot point except for one uh, thing I'll mention <laughs> in just a few seconds, which is, he explains you have to eat this plankton right away because it goes bad in just a few hours. And uh, that is something seafood actually is noted for, is how, how quickly it goes bad. But uh, considering they've got uh, the man who the doctor referred to as the, the world's leading scientist or something to that <laughs> effect... Uh, You'd think maybe he could introduce uh, some basic refrigeration. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Maybe that's just not his specialty. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And it's going to be real important, too, so it's too bad he didn't get around to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this fast decaying food is going to be a, a big plot point shortly. So Sean says the reason for the compass is that they're going to make a break for it. And after this, I think we probably won't see or hear any more of the compass, as we mentioned. But that's that's what their their ulterior motive is. Uh, they're going to try and uh, skedaddle. Recently, they found a little side tunnel that no one seems to notice or use, even though it's like right in the middle of a, what's apparently a well-used <laughs> hallway. Uh, nobody Nobody has ever explored it. The foreman comes in. Uh, suddenly, he's gathering up men for a lineup. He's going to pick crew for a special project that's come up. And he picks Sean and Jacko, uh, but each of them in turn, you know, he picks Jacko, tells him to go stand over in the approved guy's space or whatever. And Jacko immediately slips off into the, uh, into the tunnel there. And uh, same goes for Sean. Ben and Jamie distract the foreman. They volunteer, uh, and then he says, oh, you guys are too new. We're not going to take you. 
and then as soon as he's done being distracted by them, they go and slip off into the tunnel too. So he's uh, he's not terribly uh, observant, you know. And all four of our guys have now have now begun their great escape. And in the tunnel, Sean reveals they're they're all in now. Their their cards are on the table. The runaway workers are killed on sight, so there's no going back. And presumably the workers who are caught with compasses are also <laughs> killed on site. We don't find that out explicitly. But then in a hallway somewhere, we see the doctor hiding from the guards. He's in some kind of wardrobe. Uh, and he comes out, and inside of that cabinet he was just in are more guard clothes. So he uh, takes the opportunity to dress like one of them. And uh, in some other hallway, then, the doctor finds Ara, who tells him that Polly is fine. The doctor tells her, in effect, take me to your leader. He wants to meet the, the head guy of Atlantis. Then they hear people coming, so they hide behind some pillars, and it turns out to be Damon, the chief of surgery, and the junior priest, Ramo. He's not, he's not the head priest, he's just the assistant priest. And they just happen to show up here and stop to talk. And we find out through their conversation that Ramo is not a fan <laughs> of Zeroff. He says he appeals to all that is base in our people. So the doctor furtively asks Ara to distract Damon so he can talk to Ramo. Now, since she's a resident here, uh, she can just walk around like she's been walking through the halls all day long. And uh, he... Uh, he mentions, or she mentions to Damon, that she thought she saw that girl they were looking for uh, somewhere near the market. That's enough to, you know, he says, show me, show me exactly where, and so forth. Uh, and then the doctor's got Ramo all to himself. Uh, he tells him that he knows the truth about Zaroff's plans, which intrigues Ramo, and so uh, Ramo suggests they move mm -hmm. off to talk somewhere more private. Back in the tunnel... Our four men have found that the tunnel forks, so two of them go each way, and they make a little joke about the, uh, it's an old song, uh, you take the high road, now take the low road. Mm. And uh, I don't remember how it ends. I'll be in Scotland before you, or I'll be in Glasgow, or <laughs> uh, something like that. But anyway, they make a little joke about that song. So if you know that song, that's yeah, memorable, <laughs> I guess. Not a gut buster, but cute. Back in the temple, or in the temple, which uh, Ramo had uh, proposed as their secret meeting spot, the doctor and Ramo go in, and they're unaware that Polly is sleeping and hiding right nearby. Uh, the doctor explains Zaroff's crazy plan, um, and he takes a handy nearby pot of water and boils it on a handy nearby incense burner to demonstrate that pressurized water can explode the vessel that it's in, uh, which it does with, with a surprisingly bright flash of light. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have expected that. But, uh, <laughs> I haven't actually tried blowing up a pot of water before, so it could be exactly what happens. I don't know. So he's demonstrating uh, that that it is feasible to blow up the world with steam. Uh, and then the uh, the doctor asks him if there's any way that he can speak to the uh, to the main leader, whose name is Thaus. 
And Ramo will go see what he can do. He's going to try and arrange a meeting. Ramo, uh, you know, it's, it, we had found out Ramo didn't like Zaroff to start with. Um, so that, that gave the doctor the leverage he needed here, I think. Back in the tunnel, the, the men all reunite after a quick search down each hallway. Uh, they didn't, you know, they just went on for a certain distance and then turned back. But only three of them are there now. Jamie isn't there. Back in the temple, meanwhile, Rommel gives the doctor a priest outfit, which uh, uh, is very uh, pleasing to the doctor, mm. I guess. <laughs> Back in the tunnel, it turns out Jamie fell off a short ledge due to some slippery rocks. He only fell about 10 feet, though. Uh, and one of the Atlanteans asks uh, something about how much is that in meters? So I guess Dr. Zaroff has been teaching them uh, uh, the metric system, <laughs> which is just, just another reason to root against him. And uh, let's see what happens next. Ben and Sean pull him up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty, uh, could have been a potentially catastrophic fall for him, but it wasn't. In the temple, Polly's awake now. And uh, the doctor and Ramo have gone on their way. But now a door opens in the uh, sort of the housing around the statue. A secret door opens. And it's the four men from the mine tunnel. Mm. The, the little passage they found leads right up to here. They're all reunited now, the four men and Polly. And she explains that she was slated to become a fish. <laughs> In the government chamber, what we'll find out is a government chamber. Uh, it's just another narrow, tight little cramped chamber. It's not really uh, uh, something you'd expect uh, the ruler of Atlantis to live in. But then again, they're just living in whatever air pockets they can find in these caves. You know, if they have an elevator to the surface, this just occurred to me. I don't know why it didn't occur to me earlier. They have an elevator to the surface. Why don't they just leave? <laughs> <laughs> rather than rather than raising Atlantis, and I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, well, a weird little thing that would have kept them from having to answer that that would be the way it would usually be done is the TARDIS should have just appeared in Atlantis, right? So you didn't need an elevator to get them down to there, right. and then, then you could say, well, these people have all been trapped or anything. But as you say, yeah, they could leave at any time, apparently, because they brought it. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, uh, this is the chamber where the government meets, apparently, because Thaus, the leader, comes in, and he's got lackeys or cabinet members or who knows what. They come in, they all sit down, and the doctor is really trying to sell Thaus on what well, he's telling a true story. So it, uh, what you would hope such a thing would sell itself. But, uh, the doctor says, uh, when he talks of his project, have you noticed his eyes? They light up like this. <laughs> Thaus says, what does this mean? The doctor replies, the professor is as mad as a hatter. <laughs> Ramos supports the doctor's story, even though he has no firsthand proof of it. He just, uh, he can vouch for the doctor's character, I guess. And Thaus uh, rejoins that your own priests, he's talking to Ramo, your own priests proclaimed him to be the prophet who would raise us above the sea. 
And Ramos says, Lolam, who is, he's the senior priest, he says, he is old and superstitious. So after hearing all these uh, stories of Zaroff's uh, horribleness, he says, basically, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> it's like the old uh, Oracle thing, right? I mean, the prophets weren't wrong that he was going to raise them above the sea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, uh, he seems to be very serious about technical technically fulfilling his promise. Back in the temple, Ara explains that she's helping the outsiders. Finally, at the end of the second episode, we're finding out why she's been such a nice person to all these outsiders for the last two episodes. She's helping them because she hates Zaroff. Uh, apparently, he treats everybody like they're all his slaves, and she says, we are not all his slaves. <laughs> they hear people coming... So the outsiders all duck back into the statue. Ara stays outside. She's afraid, I think, of, uh, you know, trespassing inside the innards of their great, uh, great god. Back in the government chamber, Thaus says, I have given much thought to your words, and I have come to a decision. There is your answer. And the answer walks in under its own power because it's Professor Zaroff. And Thaus says to Zaroff, do with them what you will. <laughs> that's, that's our cliffhanger for episode two. Yep. So episode three, and this is uh, unusual. I'm not even sure it's happened before in early Doctor Who, because usually when they reprise the last scene, of, you know, the cliffhanger, they do it exactly the same way it was before. But this time we get a whole different shot where we see some Guards open the doors and Zaroff comes in and then we hear off screen uh, Thaus saying, you know, do with him what you will. And and then Zaroff looks, you know, to, forward to where we who we assume is the doctor. Zaroff's kind of, you know, talking to the camera, says, so you're just a little man after all, doctor, like all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor and Zaroff argue for a bit and Zaroff says it was a mistake not to let the sacrifice go ahead in the first place. And the Doctor and Ramo are now taken away, presumably to be sacrificed. And the leader of Atlantis does seem shaken. He does seem like maybe um, he trusts the Doctor a bit. But Zaroff reiterates that he has promised to raise Atlantis out of the sea. So <laughs> he's always using that very precise language. Yeah. Uh, and then we go to a temple area. And again, this is a case where they did a lot of work on this set. They have some nice columns and stuff, but it's... You know, it's like 10 feet by 10 feet. So there's a bunch of people and a bunch of temple stuff and no real space. <laughs> and, you know, the doctor and Ramo are going to be undergoing the sacrificial ceremony for Amdo. And there's an executioner with a big sword and their heads are placed on the chopping block. So previously you, it was going to happen by people being dropped into the water with sharks. But now we're going to cut off their heads. So I guess uh, whatever works for the moment. Hey. I guess the vernal equinox has passed. <laughs> a magic moment's gone. So the executioner raises the sword, looks like it's all over for the doctor this time, when from the huge Ando mask comes a yell, and then Ben's voice saying he's Amdo, and everyone should bow down their heads and not watch as he accepts his sacrifice, which is a little odd because they described Amdo as a female uh, god, but uh, I guess they don't mind you know, who's doing, <laughs> doing the talking. Yeah, well, he doesn't have a really deep voice, so. <laughs> so while everybody's put their heads down so they don't see him take the sacrifice, the Doctor and Ramo run behind the mask. 
And after that, seeing that the victims have disappeared, the priest declares it's a miracle. By the way, this priest, if you remember, um, remember that one where they were playing the, oh, actually, I think it was the Celestial Toymaker, and they were playing the game, and there were different little side characters, and one of them was this kind of uh, roly-poly guy who played this character who was like a little boy. Um, Cecil. Yeah, yeah. This priest is the same guy. <laughs> Oh, no yeah. kidding. Didn't recognize yeah, a very him. different character. Yeah, yeah. Boy, C- Cecil was a little smug bastard. <laughs> and this is where we find out, as we mentioned earlier, there's a whole area behind the Amdo mask, and uh, clearly Amdo was designed to trick the natives, and now we'll never hear about this again except them using this space as their, <laughs> their office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We never, uh, we never find out who it was who was – putting the voice in and apparently that person never time. goes behind the mask and sees that they're there left their stuff there <laughs> 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 uh so meanwhile zaroff and the the leader are talking about the great day being at hand and the priest comes in excited and tells them about the doctrine realm of disappearing and how great this is but for some reason zaroff doesn't celebrate this <laughs> he interprets it a little differently <laughs> yeah and he wants the doctor searched for uh, meanwhile, the crew is together again behind the mask, and the doctor wants to take the initiative against Zaroff, and he comes up with this brilliant plan. He points out the people need food. The food is provided by the fish people. They provide the food because they are slaves, but slaves, like worms, can be made to turn. <laughs> and first of all, I was like, <laughs> so if you're trying, I mean, if you're trying to probably be, you know, modern or whatever, comparing the slaves to worms, maybe not the best, but... I'd actually always wondered when I heard this phrase, you know, the worm turns or whatever, like, what the heck is this? So I asked ChatGPT about it <laughs> because I was like, is this something worms do that it's based on or something? And it said, no, it's nothing about that. It's a, it comes from a Shakespeare, uh, Henry the Sixth, Part Three. The phrase is, the smallest worm will turn being trodden on. So it really just means that no matter how lowly you are, there is a point where you'll kind of rise up, right? So, yeah. Yeah. I uh, I recognize that this must be a reference to the worm turns, you know, but I I didn't know that it was Shakespeare. Yeah, see, I thought maybe worms had some way that they turned around or something. Right? <laughs> 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 but no, no. <laughs> so Polly says, oh, but it doesn't matter if we, you know, get them to stop providing food. The Atlanteans will just live off their stored food. But this is when we're reminded that this, you know, Zara seafood spoils immediately. There's no refrigeration. There's no ice. You know? <laughs> so they have no reserves. <laughs> so they send a few of the people off to unionize the fish people. One of them is the Irish guy. I'll just mention the cast. So they, they really liked that actor. He was a lot of fun. He kind of cracked people up, but, you know, during rehearsals and stuff. And they really. Pre- oh, Sean. Uh, I don't know if it's Sean or Zach. Or- whichever one's the Irish guy. Yeah. 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 Um, and they said it was really helpful because Troughton, you know, usually people love working with Troughton and being around him. And, you know, he really enjoyed working and everything. But he was so annoyed about this whole production that he had a real negative um, vibe during the whole time. So they were happy to have somebody who was sort of keeping people in, in better spirits. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, he does um, He does have a lot of personality. He... Uh, it wouldn't be bad for him to become a companion. Well, it was definitely the actor bringing it, right? It's not like it was really in the script. I mean, he did have some lines, but it was really the actor uh, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So some people are sent off to unionize the fish people. 
And meanwhile, the doctor wants, you know, his crew to kidnap Zaroff. And so their plan is to use this market. So this market is the set I've been talking about. Again, it's, it might, even, it <laughs> might be the same space they did the temple in. I don't know, but it's, it's about 10 feet by 10 feet. And there's like 20 people in there and a fountain in the middle. And one of the things the actors, Polly and Ara had to do is they had to run around the edge of it, pretending they couldn't find the way out, you know, like multiple times, right? And they're, so they had, they're running like five <laughs> steps, right? Oh, we can't find the way out. And then another five steps. Oh, where is it? <laughs> and they talked about in the interviews, like, yeah, the, how hard it was to be all squeezed into that space. And then they had to figure out how you were going to move and get around people and <laughs> all that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the doctor is doing the Troughton thing that he liked, especially early on, is, you know, he's he's got a costume change. He's now like a blind beggar vendor. Uh, I They they say he looks like a sailor. He didn't look like anything like a sailor, so I don't know what that was about. But um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm, maybe he was supposed to be like a Middle Eastern sailor. Yeah, maybe because he had a, you know, he had a bandana around his head. Maybe that was supposed to be sailor-like. I don't know. He just looked like a... A vendor, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess he could also pass for like a pirate of the Caribbean or yep. something. You know. So now guards come in looking for the doctor and the crew, <laughs> which isn't too hard a job considering the size of the space. And uh, after running around the set again, Polly and Ara get a vendor woman to hide Polly under a rug. <laughs> it's kind of weird because these guards immediately come over and they're suspicious that there's someone under the rug. So one of them with a trident stabs into the rug and... <laughs> Uh, but thankfully, even though, you know, it should have done a lot of damage, it doesn't do anything to Polly. So <laughs> now I, from, from the dialogue immediately afterward, I didn't actually see any grabbing of the trident, but from the dialogue right afterward, I got the impression that the proprietress of the carpet shop must have, uh, must have stopped the trident before it punctured the rug because she was saying, you know, if you're poking holes in my rugs, how am I going to sell them? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but the way the guy stabbed, it sure didn't seem like that. <laughs> and then, so the guards have been running around, they are in wetsuits, um, which the actors also said were very difficult to deal with. They're very hot and, uh, hard to get into and all this, but, uh, two of the guards in wetsuits turned out to be Ben and Jamie in disguise. And we we never get an explanation of how they got the wetsuits. Uh, presumably they knocked some people out or found a costume room or something. Uh, they found them in the same uh, wardrobe the doctor found. Uh, the yeah, that's stuff. true. So Zaroff comes into this marketplace. And again, for a place that's about 10 feet by 10 feet with all these people, it sure is the center of attention. So now Zaroff comes in searching for the doctor. And he takes Ben and Jamie as guards to help him out. So... <laughs> Uh, and the doctor gets up and runs around the 10-foot set while Zaroff tries to get people to capture him. Yeah, and the guards uh, guards get their hands on him at one point, but just for a moment, and then he slips out of their clutches yep. yeah, because they're Ben and Jamie. <laughs> and the doctor escapes with Zaroff following, and that turns out, you know, it turns out that was the plan all along, right, to get Zaroff uh, uh, separated from everyone. And when uh, Zaroff runs after them and confronts the doctor, the doctor uses his recorder to blow dust, presumably, uh, into Zaroff's face. And then Zaroff is surrounded by our <laughs> heroes. Uh, he's just going to keep finding ways <laughs> to use the damn recorder, isn't he? Uh, meanwhile, the unionizers are talking to the fish people. Someday I can tell you my story of being a unionizer. I once was, but uh, <laughs> which may be surprising <laughs> if you know me. <laughs> 
uh, and these these fish people are floating around in this big water tank, and you know it's probably a big hassle. And I know they even talked about it in the interviews, you know, that whenever you're using water, you had to get a lot of permissions, and there was a lot of work involved and everything. But <laughs> they're just sort of sitting there, looking very unhappy, probably because the actors were, uh, you know, and their faces are covered with this sort of. Um, uh, glitter stuff, you know, they, they they can't emote or anything. They have like goggles on and glitter thingies and fin mm. thingies. And well, some some of them have goggles and some of them have these giant fish eyes yeah. that are very obviously just discs of paper <laughs> with that have been decorated to look like. Also, eyes. one of the funny things, I don't remember if they've already <laughs> been in them, but the costumes that Polly and Anna wear, where they have shell, where they're made out of shells, <laughs> the. Those were just made out of shell ashtrays <laughs> that they, oh, that they nice. tied together. And, of course, they said they were extremely uncomfortable to wear because they're just. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's creative to use those ashtrays, you know, which they said all the, all the bars had them. So um, you got to go with what your budget can fit. Yep. Now, usually when you're a unionizer, you know, you're trying to butter up the people you're unionizing, but the Irish guy <laughs> takes a different approach. He just keeps insulting the fish people and calling them names <laughs> and talking about how stupid they are. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he's making fun of them for being fish people, not like any of them volunteered for it in the first place. Yeah. But, uh, so they, it is funny, though. It's very amusing. I they think. end up throwing rocks or shells or something at him, and he's still making fun of them. You know, it's practically the Monty Python, you know, I fart in your general direction kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but then he explains to them the food situation and how they can choose to starve Atlantis. And in no time at all, they agree, you know, which agreeing just because all you can hear from them talking wise is like these bubble sounds. So they just sort of nod and uh, agree that they're going to turn on their masters. And now, so, so, so well, see what you think. You know, you, we mentioned it multiple times. We get what's, I think, supposed to be a major impressive set piece where, but for me, it's more like the cliff jumping part of the story, you know, from the dollars, whatever, <laughs> which is. It does go on. A yeah, bit. we have lots of wire work where they're supposed to be floating through the water. And again, I'm I'm totally mm -hmm. happy that they do the wire work and do this. But there's no dialogue. It just goes on and on. Presumably, they're recruiting each other or telling each other the plan. Who knows? But it just goes on. I mean, literally, you could have spent five seconds and moved to another shot. <laughs> and we would have <laughs> had all the information we needed. But it goes on and on. And, and there's this... I will say the music in this episode is not very good. It's a kind of early electronic music that's just sort of, neat, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really notice it, so I'll uh, I'll just take your word for it. Yeah, who knows? It didn't annoy me at least. Yeah, I'll cut some in here. Uh, so you, oh, oh, but I will uh, mention then. I want to get your reaction, but I will say the worst thing is not the people on wires, but people who are just like stuck on a shelf somewhere and supposed to be flapping their arms and legs as if they were sort of floating in place. <laughs> okay, and it keeps going and going. Okay, so so you seem to have a little more positive reaction. So. so, yeah, I mean, for a Doctor Who special effect uh, set piece type thing, uh, well, I, th I thought, you know, given some of the stuff we've seen uh, so far in the show up to this point or... In the, in the whole show, not just mm -hmm. this story arc, I thought uh, I thought they did quite a good job. I thought the uh, 
the wire work was really good. In fact, at first, for for the first several seconds, I was thinking, oh, do they really have people swimming in a <laughs> tank? And then, you know, you watch long enough and you start to twig to the fact that they're they're using wires. Right. But uh, uh, I thought, uh, you know, for Doctor Who, <laughs> uh, pretty damn impressive, yeah. I thought. Well, I'd call it ambitious, and then you just had to go from there for, for how successful it was. <laughs> Uh, certainly better than the Web Planet wire work, you know, they did with, and you remember they had the bees and the, you know, and all that. But, oh, yeah. well, that what was, they, did they even do well, wire they did work? That was like that. just they sort of like dancing. No, they did have some flying. Um, oh, yeah. okay. Uh, it's the dancing that really sticks in my <laughs> mind from that. Or just, it, it wasn't exactly dancing, just, just all the little florid gestures they made while they were talking, right, and, right. you know. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I can certainly agree this is ambitious. Uh, I, and I think that, honestly, if they'd cut it to even 30 seconds of it, that it would work much better for me. But it's just as it goes on and on, and then it gets, then you see more and more of the silliness of, you know, like I said, yeah. people sort of on these shelves just flapping their arms and legs up and down and other stuff. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. One thing I noticed, too, is that they had a lot of, columns of bubbles rising and i was trying to figure out how they did that did they just like have that on separate film and did they just like sort of overlay it on this film or did they have i didn't pay close enough attention aerators yeah it's a good question um but it wouldn't surprise me if they did something like have a aquarium maybe in front of them or something that they were running bubbles through but i i didn't look closely Mm -hmm. enough so uh, uh good question so meanwhile, Zaroff, having been kidnapped by the doctor and company, is actually amused the doctor had the nerve to kidnap Zaroff himself. So <laughs> he always said it's a good villain when he refers to himself in the third person. <laughs> and he says his capture doesn't matter because the nuclear fission process has already been started. Now, it reminds me of uh, Watchmen right in the end when he's explaining to them things and they're like, well, we're going to stop you. And he's like, wow, this isn't a comic book. You know, I already... <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you if this hadn't already started, you know, an hour ago or whatever, right? <laughs> uh, but the doctor thinks Zaroff is bluffing because there's no way that that Zaroff would be able to set this up and not be there to start it himself. Not technically, but because of his ego, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the crowning achievement of science he's got to be on hand for. Yeah. And then Zaroff has a heart attack, <laughs> which... Uh, it, you know, I watch a lot of these like true crime videos and arrest videos and everything. And one of the things that you do see, and it's one of the things that complicates something. Cops are used to every single time you put a person in cuffs, they're like, oh, you're breaking my wrists or my shoulders. I have this problem. I can't breathe. Right? Oh, I can't yeah. breathe. Yeah. It happens every time. And so that's what I'm reminded of here is like, you know, suddenly Zaroff's like, oh, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the doctor buys into it and he's like, well, you know, Polly stay here and then Polly and Ramo stay to look over him. And, the, and then all the strapping young men run off with the doctor. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why have the why have the strapping young men guard this? Because <laughs> <laughs> they want to find where the nuclear action is going to start. And then <laughs> I have to say, I think that. For all the crap I've thrown at this and also, you know, represented to the actors and everything, um, you know, Zaroff is is easily my favorite character in here. And now he really goes for it, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I'm I'm repentant. I'm going to die. You know, I, 
you know, I want to pray to your God. Just help me do it. Get me up. And, and you know, Ramo is skeptical. And he's like, no, you're a good person. And I want to stand by your side so I can feel the aura of your goodness. <laughs> I was like, that all sounds, sounds like he's reformed to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ramo, uh, Ramo should have known well, better than to be And here's another case where Polly is again out of character because she, she's like, Oh, I think he's telling the truth. You should help him out. Like she's supposed to be the kind of no, hard nosed, yeah. you know, get it done girl, and here she's just totally, right, totally street fooled. smarts yeah. and all that. <laughs> so, uh, of, of uh. course, as soon as he picks up Zaroff, Zaroff starts choking him, and then he grabs a spear. And this is what we mentioned earlier. Polly's behind Zaroff. She could knock him in the head. She could knock him over. She could grab the spear. She could do anything. And she just sits there and watches and screams a little bit, right? She does nothing. <laughs> um, and this is pretty cruel. Zaroff, as soon as he knocks Ramo down, he just stabs him. I mean, we don't, we, it, it's mm -hmm. off screen, but it is pretty cruel. Yeah. I mean, we see him uh, have the spear, you know, just pointing right down at his chest and he just really drives it down. Yep. So, and then Zaroff decides to take Polly with them. Um, meanwhile, the doctor and Ben and Jamie are in the temple, and Ramo stumbles in, so he hadn't totally died. And so he stumbles in and dies, and they realize what has happened. And now the doctor sends Jamie back to find Zaroff and Polly <laughs> while the doctor and Ben go on. And Jamie finds Zaroff and Polly, and she, he fights Zaroff. And this time, to her credit, Polly does pick up a styrofoam rock and hit Zaroff in the head. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't do a whole lot, but at least she does something. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, elsewhere, Damon is with the Atlantean leader, uh, Thaus, I guess. I just was never catching his name, or Taos, or however it was said. And Damon says, the slaves are in revolt. And I was just totally disappointed that he didn't do the line the way it should be done. <laughs> the slaves are revolting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Zaroff now shows up and shocks the leader by saying, any Atlanteans who defy him will be killed. And the guy's like, wait, I'm in charge and we're going to do X and Y. And, you know, Zaroff's done with all the pretending. He says, they're my people now. I hold the whole world in my power. <laughs> <laughs> and the leader orders his guards to arrest Zaroff. And we've seen this even before in Doctor Who, right? When the when the guy in charge thinks the guards are loyal to him, but nope. Uh, was was that just, uh, what, what was the power one? Power of the Daleks. The one with yeah. the governor. Yep, yep. Yeah, that was... Was that just the last yep. one we did? No, there was or, one in between. Uh, uh, there was the Highlanders, but it was. That was oh, that's right. One. Yeah, that's where we picked up Jamie, right, right. sure. But yeah, so only yeah. two stories ago, the Doctor's first one, we already saw all this stuff with the guards <laughs> on there. And then Zaroff pulls out a gun, and I'm like, well, that's nice. I can think of about five times earlier in the story where you could have used a gun. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Yeah, maybe he just really likes using spears. <laughs> Maybe he has one bullet. I don't know. But anyway, so, so he pulls out a gun and shoots Thaus. Uh, and then he orders the other men to be killed. And this is actually kind of chilling the way you do it. Just while the camera's on him, we hear off screen several shots, you know, so we know that people have died. And I thought that was pretty, um, mm -hmm. pretty chilling. And then he pretty much looks uh. at the camera and yells what apparently is the famous line from, from this story. Nothing in the world can stop me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the the show isn't called Professor Zero. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of the episode. 
All right. Well, episode four is here, and this one goes back to being a reconstruction, and uh, worse yet, the half-assed BBC style of reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, they did at least have a lot of different photographs, which is nice, because some of the reconstructions have not had the variety of photographs. But uh, but without narrating the actual action in a lot of these scenes where there is a lot going on, it's very hard to follow. And I I really, there was a lot of stuff I didn't have an idea about until I read the scripts to, earlier today, you know, from uh, the Chrissy's transcript site. And they have good narration in them or, you know, marginal yeah. notes, whatever. Well, you and again, I'll recommend and what I sort of use just to experience the story in these cases is the, the audio book where they do have the narration and everything. And one of the silly mm, things yeah. about the way the BBC treated this is that it's also the BBC who put out these audio books with all the narration and everything. So, you know, why not, you know, combine the efforts you've already <laughs> done uh, and make this a, a better experience? But okay, whatever. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're in this government chamber again where uh, we originally met Thaus way back when. And uh, he's in here. Now he's wounded but alive. Uh, so the, the Professor Zaroff didn't actually kill him. He just uh, just did a number on him. And the doctor and Ben have come in here. They see that he's wounded but alive. And uh, so they're going to head to the generating station. But they'll also take him along and try to drop him off on the way. And then we uh, go to a secret chamber where, you know, a little cave-type place. Well, pretty much everything in Atlantis is <laughs> a cave-type place. But uh, Ara and Sean and Jacko are here, and the Doctor and Ben show up with Thaus. Ara tells the Doctor that Polly and Jamie have gone to the lab to look for him. The Doctor has an idea, a rather bold one. He says, our one hope of stopping Zaroff is to flood all this lower part of Atlantis. So the plan is Jacko and Sean, they'll work to evacuate all the people to higher levels, which they, if, they're, if they're in a volcano with a lot of air pockets in it, I mean, a volcano is going to take some time to go around and, you know, let everybody know they need to evacuate. <laughs> but maybe, plus they don't even, well, Jacko and Sean, yeah, they've been down in the mines since they arrived, presumably. Yeah. But I guess if they can get the word to some people, then those people can tell two also, friends. Yeah, they can tell I two think story-wise, there's a bit of hand-waving here because they don't want to have the doctor drown everyone in Atlantis. So it's sort of like, oh, we're just flooding the, the lower portion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they do even they do even mention one of them asks something like uh, are are we sure that that's just going to flood the lower <laughs> levels and uh, I think the doctor basically shrugs and <laughs> says I don't know we'll have to hope something like that anyway uh, meanwhile while they're evacuating people the doctor and Ben will uh, will break the walls and flood the place uh, in the lab. Zaroff is getting reports from you know, intercom systems from the various reactor maintenance stations. So I don't know where he got all this advanced technology. Maybe he just brought it with him when he came to Atlantis. So Zaroff's getting all his reports on the intercom from the reactor maintenance stations. And then he gets one disturbing report that some workers have abandoned their posts to look for food because they've heard rumors that starvation is imminent, which, uh, you know, I mean, they haven't even had, 
had time to get their bellies rumbling yet, but they're already uh, out there. Well, you know, it's possible that plankton meal. doesn't uh, fill you up as much as uh, you might like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's entirely possible. So at the generating station, the doctor and Ben, the doctor isn't dressed anything like a guard, but uh, Ben has some guard, uh, guard gear, so they do the old fake guard, fake prisoner gag. The real guard, though, he challenges Ben for the password of the day, which he, uh, which he doesn't, doesn't know, because uh, he's been out working all day, he essentially <laughs> says to this guard. So uh, the guard says, how do I know he's a wanted man? Because that's the story, is that Ben has taken this wanted mm. man in. <laughs> he says, well, blimey, look at him. He ain't normal, is he? <laughs> Which, uh, the doctor makes a little remark about being slightly uh, offended by that <laughs> later. But, so that seems to uh, soften up the guard a little bit, because uh, he ain't normal. And uh, the doctor provokes the guard then by saying, you don't know the password either. And, uh, of course... Uh, the guard obligingly replies, it's Oscar. Get him out of here. <laughs> Which, of course, Oscar works on the next guard they run mm -hmm. into. <laughs> so then they get into the inner sanctum or whatever. Uh, you know, Again, this is not everything is entirely visually clear here because of the reconstruction. But according to the script notes, he knocks out an engineer. And then we do hear the doctor talking as he's messing with the controls on the reactor. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing, but, uh, you know, may as well try. And he does, he does manage to screw something up real good, but we cut to the tunnel. Jamie and Polly, uh, it seems they're starting to think they may be lost, and that's really all that cutaway <laughs> scene does for us. Back in the lab, Zeroff gets a reading of a radiation leak, which is... Uh, uh, evidence that the doctors messing around has had some actual uh, negative consequences. In the tunnel where Jamie and Polly are, the vibration from the reactor is starting to make the walls break down. The, uh, the collapse of at least the lower levels of Atlantis is imminent. So Jamie and Polly start looking for higher ground. In a different tunnel, meanwhile, you've got Sean and Jacko and Ara, and they've got Thos on a stretcher. And there's noise, and we get some still shots in the reconstruction of the the temple itself uh, flooding. So Amdo, or whatever her name is, is uh, going to have her temple desecrated a little bit, it looks like. Damon uh, runs into our group of Sean and Jacko et al., and uh, he, uh, he laments that he's lost his operating room. Yeah. Back in the tunnels, Jamie and Polly, they've reached a dead end, but Jamie has a candle, and he can use it to detect a faint draft. So there may be hope for them yet. Or maybe they'll just die in the cold, cold water at the base of Atlantis. We'll, we'll find out. Then we see a cave where Sean and his group, they've, they've managed to get up to this cave that's uh, apparently on one of the upper levels, or at least above the lower levels. And there's a bunch of other refugees there from throughout the lower levels of Atlantis. Meanwhile, Doctor, the Doctor, and Ben arrive in uh, Doctor Professor Zeroff's laboratory. And uh, the Doctor has another little gambit he does with all the, the 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 Professor still has a bunch of his henchmen around him. You know, these are Atlanteans that he's persuaded to work with him. And the doctor says, they must be devoted to you to allow you to blow them all to pieces. Mm. 
So an engineer uh, asks what he's talking about. He says, what's he talking about, professor? The doctor explains his, uh, the professor's plan to blow up the earth and everyone and everything on it. And at that point, all the engineers clear out. <laughs> now it's just down to the doctor and Ben and Zaroff. So Zaroff goes and hides behind a barred gate and just slides down out of the ceiling. And that's his safety. He's planned for this eventuality very cleverly. And now all he has to do is wait for the ticking clock. But in this, this case, it's actually a rising needle <laughs> on a dial. When it gets up to a thousand units of something, he's got to push a plunder, which plunger, uh, which I don't think is standard equipment in a reactor control room, but uh, he probably put it in there knowing that sooner or later he'd want to blow up the Probably world. based on Chernobyl. Ah, <laughs> uh, maybe. And uh, so back in the tunnel, Jamie and Polly find a wee hole and they take a <laughs> chance on it. And then back in the lab, Ben says that he has to go. And this, this struck me as... A little bit surprisingly, you know, uncharacteristic of Ben. You know, he he seems like the guy who'd uh, who'd stick around, uh, you know, not leave the doctor hanging. But uh, but he says he has to go, leaving just the doctor and Zaroff here together, separated by the uh, Zaroff's uh, cage wall that he's dropped down. Uh, the doctor disconnects the lights, and this is one of those things that really was not obvious in the reconstruction, at least not to me. What happens, according to the script, is Zaroff pulls out a gun, raises the gate, uh, then the lights come on from emergency power, and Zaroff gloats about how he's got emergency power. <laughs> but why he would raise the gate that is just open bars... Uh, when he has a gun that can shoot through <laughs> these very large gaps between the bars. Um, well, I, I can only I speculate that he has gun amnesia. I mean, he's only remembered once <laughs> to use his gun when it would have been helpful <laughs> many times. So, Or like I say, maybe he had one bullet and he used that bullet and uh, that, you know, that was it. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. It could be any number of things that I just am too slow to pick up on. <laughs> uh, but Ben was actually doing a fake-out the whole time. He actually has returned. And now, while Zaroff is out of his little cubbyhole, Ben lowers the gate so that Zaroff can't get back in because the plunger is inside that gate. The doctor and Ben, they make tracks. They get out of there. Zaroff shoots at them as they leave, but he doesn't. Uh, yeah, okay. doesn't so, so I guess he had more than one bullet and his gun amnesia went away for a moment or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, his, his amnesia went away, but his poor aim stayed with him. As doctor and Ben make their way upwards through the caves of Atlantis, the doctor thinks about going back for Zaroff. He debates it. Back in the tunnel, this is the tunnel that Polly and Jamie are going through. Uh, they've, they've found a little uh, place where they can head up, and hopefully, hopefully it doesn't just lead to a dead end, but they've got a draft coming through it. So it's cause for some hope anyway. Polly's exhausted, but Jamie helps her. This is, this is the second time, at least, that she's been exhausted in this uh, story arc here. In another tunnel, the doctor and Ben are 
trying to figure out what to do next, but the doctor says Zeroff is cut off, so either he's deducing this or maybe he did go back for Zeroff and just didn't have any luck. Zeroff is cut off now, so he and Ben just press on up, hopefully towards the surface or towards safety at least. And then we find that Jamie and Polly are back in the cave on the beach. They've made it out. This this little crack with a draft in it is somehow taking them all the way back out of Atlantis, back up to the beach. Uh, so it was worth it was worth the risk in this case. <laughs> In the laboratory, Zeroff is still down there trying to reach through his barred gate that's now working against him, trying to reach through it to reach the plunder, plunger, but the water rises above his head, and presumably that's the end of Professor Zeroff. So Although, as we know, in the in, world, unless you've seen a body and etc., Professor Zeroff could always return. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly a possibility. Uh, but as far as we know, he's, he's done for. And, uh, if the world's surviving, at least, uh, at least he'll get what he expected out of it. <laughs> part of what he expected, the dying part. So then back in the cave where all the refugees were set up, uh, Damon gives a little speech, which is, uh, it was temples and priests and superstition that made us follow Zaraf in the first place. And he goes on to say, but we will have enough left to build a new Atlantis without gods and without fish people. <laughs> so no, no gods, no man, or no, no. What, what was the thing that Andrew Ryan yeah. said? No, no, no gods, only yeah. man, something like yeah. that. So, so maybe this is the new Andrew Ryan for it. And although, you know, I can, I can understand what's intended here when they say, and without fish people, it sort of sounds like genocide. You know? it's like, well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder if Damon knows how to reverse the surgery. Presumably it's, he does. We'll have to hope fingers crossed for those fish people. So, Ben and the doctor make it back up to the beach. Everyone's reunited. Um, and Sean and Jacko even show up just in time to see an English police box vanish. And Sean makes a, makes a remark about that English police box. He may have had a run-in or two with uh, those in the past. Um, inside the TARDIS, Jamie asked the doctor if he can control the TARDIS. Um, and the, uh, the others laugh at this uh, because the doctor really doesn't <laughs> know how to control the tar TARDIS. But the doctor uh, decides to show them all, and he's going to set course for Mars. And very soon after, he utters the final line of this story arc. He says, I'm very sorry, everybody, but I'm afraid the TARDIS is out of control. <laughs> the end of the show. Yep. So, uh, well, I mean, you know, we've kind of covered a lot of the discussion stuff throughout, uh, but obviously you were maybe a little warmer to it than the actors were, and maybe I was. What, where does it land for you on the, uh, the worth-watching uh, meter there? <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, as reconstruction issues right. aside, um, I think just as a Doctor Who story, it's... It's about on par. I mean, the underwater scene, I really did think uh, it, it was flawed. I, I grant you that. But uh, I, I thought I did 
I did like both the ambition and uh, some of the execution. Mm. So, so it was it was kind of neat. Um, would I recommend or recognize? Would I recommend watching uh, the whole four episodes? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't make it a high priority. But uh, but but Professor Zaroff is fun. He's mm. uh, he's you know, puts some back into it, and same with Sean. He's fun. So yeah, it has its moments. Nothing uh, mind-blowingly great, but um, yeah, average or a cut above average mm-hmm. for the show so far, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, it's not the... So there's some, and, and it is hurt by reconstructions, of course, that I find kind of boring, you know, like the smugglers or whatever. And uh, and I probably would enjoy them more if, if the live action was there. And at least in this case, we have we have half of the live action. Um, so... To me, it's it's not that level of like uh, it's just boring and like you know. And there's a couple actors who are fun to watch, Sarov especially. Overall, what I'd say is that this is like a mishmash of you know 20 different threads we've had in Doctor Who, and I just didn't think that they none of them you know was as good as where it's been done elsewhere, right? And and as I say, ultimately, yeah, I just think of the Aztecs and think, well, in a lot of ways, the Aztecs was a pretty similar story. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I would much rather yeah, watch that. that. <laughs> yeah, if the choice is between that and this, um, hands down, go with a, a good old Tlatox. So <laughs> right. he he'll, he'll treat you right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, I, I liked it overall, but there is, there's a lot of flaws and we've, we've discussed them amply, you know, a lot of filler type stuff, a lot of, uh, oh, what was the other thing I was going to mention? Oh, a lot of plot holes. We unusual number of plot holes, even right. in a show that has quite a few plot holes in general. But. It's also annoying to me when every single element of a story comes together, right? That feels a little artificial usually. But just the fact that over and over there are these threads that could be important story points or could make it more interesting, and they just go away. They never come back, right? Or you have the magic right. gun, right? Well, when he wants to use it, it's there, and and when it's you know inconvenient <laughs> to the story, he forgets about it. You know, it's just it feels like the writer just didn't, or in the process of this thing being written and rewritten because it was a problematic script that it just didn't have somebody who was sort of looking and seeing that things you know went through in a way that made sense, right? Right. So uh, I think that's definitely definitely an issue that that makes it less less satisfying. But definitely ambitious, and and I certainly would feel a little bit different about suggesting someone see it if if uh, the full thing were available or if they had animation. And one of the things I could imagine doing, like we did our style reconstruction on it, is it would be interesting to really make it an underwater kind of Bioshock like thing, right? Where you're walk, walking through tunnels and you can see the, you know, the sharks and the um, people all around and all that. And obviously they kind of wanted oh, that yeah. effect, you know. But uh, yeah, I says I think when you combine it with the reconstruction, it's like no, unless unless you're a Doctor Who completist, I wouldn't I wouldn't bother. Now, now was it the third episode? The third episode had both the underwater fish people and Zeref's uh, line that you right, say is right. uh, considered fairly legendary. So maybe watching the third episode by itself <laughs> would be a, a good to point. take yeah. for somebody who's curious. <laughs> that's true. I think that makes sense. You certainly get a sense of it, and I'm glad. That's why I am glad that that one, the live action, was available. I mean, oh my God, that that 
the fish sequence in Reconstruction would truly be, I mean, because it goes on so long. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah, the there'd be sounds. a lot of quiet there because the fish people do seem to communicate mostly through hand Yeah, gestures. it'd be five minutes of bubble sounds and that's it. So, um, so there you go. You know, and once again, just listen to this podcast and don't worry about the rest. <laughs> Maybe listen to the audiobook if you want. <laughs> now, the next one is also half missing, the moon base, but thankfully mm. uh, the missing episodes are animated. So. And going into it, I'll say this is one I'm, I have affection for. We'll see, I haven't seen it in a while, so we'll see if it survives. But I think there's some fun stuff uh, in here, so we'll we'll see how that goes. Okay. Very good. Yeah, you know, also in the conclusion, I was going to talk about the thing I think about, of course, is the Bioshock video game, if you recall, which has that story yeah. of, of, you know, the, you know, the mad sort of uh, uh, guy creating this whole underwater empire so that uh, all the, the best people in the world could come and live their true lives and everything. So if he could do it, I mean, you know, it just seems like something that, uh, that egomaniacs have this ability to get a lot of technology underwater. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Although Andrew Ryan had an actual plan, though he had he had started like fifteen, sixteen <laughs> years before the, the events of Bioshock, and I don't think I don't know if he was necessarily mad either. Ambitious, to be sure. Well, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> now a total digression, of course. I mean, I one of the things I think is great about that game is that he is the bad guy as a person that I personally can agree with a lot of his philosophy. Well, also oh, yeah. seeing, you know, the results that can occur when you sort of take it to the, <laughs> to the extremes, right? <laughs> yeah, this, this is an aside that probably no listeners of this podcast would be interested in at all. But, you know, Andrew Ryan, his name is more or less an anagram of Ayn Rand, right. who uh, shared some of the same philosophy. But, you know, of course, how by our how rapture fell in bioshock is that andrew ryan essentially betrayed his own ideals and there's a place in the game where you find another character you don't meet her in person because she's dead by then but you get audio logs and you find her corpse and so on named anya anders daughter who is also an anagram of ayn rand or close to it and she actually even sort of looks like a uh, young Ayn Rand with uh, this sort of black flapper bob. And, uh, but, but she actually has sort of a more principled approach and she's trying to stand against Ryan who has you know, made it evident that he's betrayed his own ideals. Anyway, I thought that was interesting that uh, Ken uh, Ken Levine mm -hmm. Levine yeah Levine it, I think so. uh, he uh, he uh, came up with a pretty pretty fun pretty fun little game there <laughs> I really liked it yeah I'll probably put this stuff after the credits but uh, yeah it's a, it's definitely worthwhile also I haven't played it I don't know if you have they did do a a, a remake of it or well well or at least a you know upgrade of it or something so I don't know if it's uh, you know, how well the uh, graphics and everything are, are improved. But, um, oh, the remastered yeah. version. I, I don't think I've tried that yet. Uh, one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about due, I guess. <laughs> you fool! <laughs>